Welcome to the Questions of Life podcast. I'm Kath, I'm joined by Donald. Hello. We're joined by some wonderful people here live in the church. Brilliant. In our session today, we are talking about choices. Does God choose a few people to become Christians or does he invite everybody to know him? And does he help us to make choices and decisions in our lives? Enjoy our conversation. So Donald, we're talking about choices. I want you to cast your mind back. When we were both at school in the olden days, things were quite different. And I remember, particularly at primary school and part of secondary school, uh, playing sport. It was in my uh, pre-back op and knee op days when I actually was quite good at sport and could walk without moaning. Um, When they were picking teams, it was always an interesting point in PE lessons. So at my school, they used to pick two captains. Uh, I was often one of those captains. Those two captains would stand in front of the rest of the class, and then one by one, they would pick whoever they wanted to come and be part of their team. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Where would you have been picked in, in your school days? For sport? For sport. Uh, I would have been in uh, early on. Early on? Early on, I would have been picked early on, yeah. Were you, was, you were good at sport? You don't look so surprised. <laughs> I was okay. I was in the, at primary school, I was in the school team. Yeah. And then at secondary school, I was in the second team and then I got fed up with that. <laughs> <laughs> and there were four teams, but I, and I, I didn't really want to play in the second team, so I stopped. But there's something about that whole process of being selected, isn't there? I remember, and this is awful, that I quite often used to be one of the captains and get to pick people. And I do remember we got to these last two girls at the end, and I didn't want either of them. And I said, we'll go without. I'm not having either of them. You can have them on your team. And there was like a five-minute discussion. These poor girls were sitting there practically in tears. I don't want her. What? She can't throw. She can't run. Why? Why would I want her? Just no concept of how my behavior would have impacted Mm. her. Mm. And there is something about this whole being chosen thing that's really important and special. That when you think, actually, somebody wants me, I've been selected. I'm not the last person. It it kind of really encourages us. It it does something to our self-esteem. And when we think, actually, I've not been chosen, I've been left out, that can be really quite hurtful and disturbing and damaging to our self-esteem. And as we talk about this whole area of being chosen. There's a school of Christianity. There's a debate that has rumbled on for many, many years as to whether actually becoming a Christian is our choice or whether it is actually God who chooses those that become Christians. Some of this comes from some of the language that's used in the Bible. And very often the Bible refers to the followers of God, to Christians, as a a chosen people. I've got an example here, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people. When the Bible talks about people being chosen. What do you think the Bible means by that? Excellent. So it's a big subject, and I think that that, that question is the right question. What does it mean? Because it, what we think it means is, is secondary to what it means. In other words, we're all used to, as I've said many times, we're all used to sending a text or a message or an email and people saying, getting upset with us, and we say, that's not what I meant. So the key question is, what does the word chosen mean in the Bible? And uh, it's used a lot, so it's a key concept. And the Old Testament uses a lot in descriptions of the Israelite nation. And the descendants of Abraham are called the chosen people. And then it's used in the New Testament about disciples. They are the chosen 12, and there are chosen apostles, and there are chosen... uh, That verse there about the church is chosen. So it's a really key concept. And I think it is something that does divide Christians. And 
uh, it's an area that I have a particular view on that others in our own church will take a different view on. And that's okay. We're all trying to get to the truth. And so what I can do is explain why I understand it in, in a particular way, why I think that's what the writers meant. Okay? And just chipping in there, it's healthy to have a church that has different opinions. I think so. Where we don't dictate, this is what you have to believe. There's a certain healthiness in that, and it brings a depth and a variety to our church, and it's something we've always encouraged. I think so. There are, there are, there are core elements that I said at the beginning that, we are, that define us as Christians. We believe that Jesus is God on earth, that he came, lived, died in our place, and rose again. That's, that's the core of being a Christian. Mm. We have plenty of people who come to our church who are exploring that and discover, working out whether they believe that, and that's absolutely fine. And there's a whole range of other things where we see things in different ways, and that's healthy sometimes because we might grow and change our mind. And if there's only a moment where you think, I've, I've understand everything, that's the moment we're deluded. Yeah. Because there's always more to learn, and there's more you think, actually, I didn't quite get that right. I, I was interpreting that through my experience or my understanding or my prejudices or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So to rub up alongside people who see things differently, I think is incredibly healthy and enables us to grow, enables us to understand, ultimately may help us to say, well, I, I still think what I think, but at least I understand alternatives and often actually the truth probably lies in the things both things coming together but on this issue the fundamental question is whether God has chosen who can be saved or not who can become a Christian who can be a Christian who, who will heaven. go to heaven yeah. has God chosen predetermined uh, predestined that or is that a free choice uh, so uh, my understanding is to start with the big picture. There are verses in the Bible that taken out and pulled out will say one thing or the other. That's why there's a debate. And I think whenever there are debates between playing one part of the Bible against another, I want to go back to two core uh, foundations of our faith. The first is Jesus. Whatever we understand has to make sense of Jesus and in particular has to make sense of why Jesus is dying on the cross and what is happening. And I will come back to that in a few moments. And the second pillar on which we build our faith is our understanding of the nature and character of God which is best revealed in a number of places in the Old Testament where God is described. It begins where God appears to pass by Moses and God is described as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, forgiving wickedness and rebellion, and, uh, but punishing those who sin to the fourth generation. So however we understand God, it has to fit those two great pillars of who God is, the God who dies on the cross, the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. So I'm going to come back to those two things in a, in a few moments, probably about half 11. <laughs> so let's take the word chosen. The people of Israel were chosen. Abraham was chosen and his descendants were chosen. And the very beginning of that choice God says to Abraham, I want you to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. You and your descendants are to be a blessing. So in the language around this choice, it is about what God wants the people of Israel to do. It is not about what is going to happen to them. If we go back to our bit about sport, it is clear if we're a football team that God is choosing who's going to be right back, who's going to be left back, who's going to be centre forward based around our gifts and our experience. He's not going to, I don't believe God chooses who's going to live or die as a football manager. Mm. It's about, here's my team, here's all the people and I'm choosing what they're going to do within that team. And the reason I tie that into Israel, uh, the people of, in the Old Testament Israel, not modern-day Israel, the Old Testament Israel, 
is that they were chosen to be a light to the nations. These are the languages, this is the language of the Old Testament. They were chosen to be God's special instrument to reveal his nature. They were given the Old Testament law to prove to other nations how God wanted people to live. Mm -hmm. They were there to be uh, the, the outstretched arms of God to show this is in reality what it looks like to be in relationship with me. But they weren't the only people that would have been able to respond and interact with God at that time. No. So, they, so they're just, you know, held up as, as you say, this is your special calling upon you. But around the world, after the Tower of Babel, everyone was scattered, different languages, different nations. But all of those people equally... There were people that were were trusting God and following in Him. Yeah, as well. so you get you get occasions where they meet folks from other nations that are described as God fearing or knowing God. So or, it's or not just this one nation no. that is full of the only believers. But the yeah, and but the key thing is that they're not only believers. Then so and quite throughout the history in the Old Testament, they they choose not to believe. Yes, they rebel. They mess up. They don't do what God asks of them, and so their choice is not something that they can't get out of. It's quite mm. clear that again and again and again, the people of Israel rebel. Mm. They disobey God. They don't do what God asked them to do. All of Israel was chosen, but not all of Israel was saved because the people made their own choices. And they weren't chosen to be saved. They were chosen to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. And some of them fulfilled that and some of them chose not to do that. That's the clear, in my mind, and obvious reading of the Old Testament, that God chooses a people to do something, and some of them do it, and many of them don't. And that's kind of fulfilled in the way Jesus talks about having given them lots of choice and coming and, and, and asking the people of Israel to do what they wanted and, and how they, they rebelled against him. You get a parallel in the New Testament with the disciples because Jesus is very clear that he's chosen 12 disciples. And he talks about how he's chosen them. And he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. I've chosen you 12 to be my special 12. Now, there were, there were other followers of Jesus and there were other disciples. There were seven, one point it talks about 72 and there's clearly more than that. Mm. But there were 12 who were chosen to walk around for three years with Jesus and learn and to be the leaders of the future church. Now, within that 12 is Judas. And it's very clear that Jesus chose Judas to be a disciple and Judas chose to allow Satan into his heart mm -hmm. and that he became uh, disaffected with Jesus and he ultimately betrays him. So again, you've got the same idea of chosen. Chosen to do something, to be a disciple, it's a parallel to be a blessing. The disciples were to, mm -hmm. to take the message of Jesus out after the ascension of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus, and they were to take that out mm -hmm. and proclaim it to the world. They were to be his witnesses, that's the language that's used, throughout the world. It was about a job. Mm -hmm. They weren't chosen to be saved. Mm -hmm. They were chosen to be with the 12 special witnesses, in my view. And... Judas was chosen to be one of those 12 witnesses. And it's, the language of the New Testament is clear. Judas was chosen by God to serve, but he, he followed Satan and didn't. So that for me is, is the picture of what this word chosen means. That God has for every one of us, I believe, a task, a mission, a calling based on our gifts. He's chosen what gifts to give us. He's chosen what part of the body we are, whether we're an arm or a leg or a nose or an ear. It's one of the metaphors of the church. We're all different parts of a body. He's chosen that. Uh, he's chosen um, you to do what you do here in the church. He's chosen me to do what I do here in the church. I have a choice whether I follow that and obey that. And that comes out of my choice to receive Jesus. He's knocked on the door of my heart and I choose whether to follow him. So the main use of the word chosen is about doing the tasks that God asks of us. That's the main use. There is a second use of the word chosen, which is that God has chosen 
that we will be saved through Jesus dying on the cross. That we're not saved by uh, any other religious ceremony. We're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by communion. We're not saved by mass. We're not saved by birth. We're not saved by being as good a person as we can possibly be. We are saved through the death of Jesus on the cross. And the Bible talks about that as a choice. That's God's deliberate decision. How will mankind be saved? They will be saved through Jesus dying on the cross. So when the the Bible talks about chosenness, it is talking about people who have, God has got a job for them to do. And it's talking about his method of salvation. And then what happens is that very often the people who respond to God and say, here I am, Lord, use me, one of the, one of the, the words that's used to describe them is as the chosen people. So chosen then becomes a noun, mm-hmm. becomes a, a title. These are the people who have responded to God. Now, there are one or two verses uh, a part of Romans 9 to 11 uh, in the New Testament. Not all of 9 to 11. In fact, 9 to 11 can be read either way. So you've got to be careful. But there are a couple of places you can take a verse out of that and say, if I just read this verse, it looks like God has chosen who can believe in me, on, believe in him or not. And that's where I go, okay, if you've got two bits two bits of Romans 9 to 11 that seem to contradict each other or two bits of the Bible that seem to contradict each other. How do you decide what the disciple, the the writers meant? So if there are bits of the Bible that seem very clear to say we have a choice, we have to choose to obey God or not, and there are maybe one or two verses that appear to say we don't have a choice and God's decided, how do we square that apparent contradiction and that's where I go back to my two great pillars and I would want to say that if God has chosen who can be a Christian and the rest of us have absolutely no chance of being a Christian even if we wanted to be that is not compatible with Jesus dying on the cross That's not his chosen method of salvation. There is no point to Jesus dying on the cross if he's already pre-decided who is going to go to heaven. And it's not compatible with saying that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. Mm. So I take my two big pillars and I say, okay, when the Bible appears to say two different things, how do I understand that? Taking those two pillars, I would then say that the, the, the verses that appear to say God has chosen us to be saved, that's probably not what they meant because that's not in line with the majority view of Scripture. So that's how I understand. So I believe we are chosen people. God mm-hmm. has chosen us to be the left back in the team. Mm. He's gifted us, he's shaped us in a particular way and that is God's choice. And we decide whether we want to go along with that or whether we want to rebel against him and be disobedient. And at the end of time, God deals with disobedience. Mm. And that's our choice. That's how I understand it. There will be other people who see it differently and, and, and that's absolutely fine. But that's how I understand it and that's why I understand it that way. I think for me, the whole nature of God the cross, do you think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus choosing to follow him? I think of this, this is one of my favourite passages, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, to some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For God so loved the world, not yes. just the chosen, the elect, yes. or whatever. Yes. You know, these are key passages of scripture, that God's love is for the whole of mankind. Yes. And for me to begin to think that actually that doesn't mean the whole of mankind. It means that a third or a quarter or however many uh, is all that he really cares about and loves and calls. I find that incredibly difficult. And I find it difficult as well. I remember being at Bible college and this was something that I really grappled with and debated because there were lots of people that were very forceful in saying, no, that's not true, that God only chooses his elect a certain few. 
And for me, I was like, what's the point in evangelism? What's the point in trying to share our faith? And their response was, well, if somebody doesn't respond, if they're not interested, they're not going to heaven, you leave them, you go on to the next person until you find someone that is, and then you know that they're chosen. I couldn't get my head around that. How can you give up on people? God never gives up on people. God is the God who pursues. God is the God who loves. God is the God who, you think of all of those that went astray in the Bible, God is just trying to draw them back, saying, I love you, come back into the fold. So I find it incompatible with the God that I've experienced and the God that I read about in the Bible. But we have a question. Okay. And uh, this is the passage that we were trying to uh, work out whether we were going to throw in tonight or whether it would take too long. The wonderful Joe Harrison, who is here with us, Joey boy. Matthew 22, 14. This is from the New Living Translation. I love the look on your face. Many are called, but few, but few are, chosen. are chosen. What is meant by this? Great question, Joe. Okay, so the whenever you have a passage, I go back to my main thing, is that when you have a verse that appears at odds to the majority, you've got to look a little bit deeper and say, well, what did they mean? We've said, but the, the majority of the Bible indicates that you and I need to repent, mm -hmm. and therefore it's within our... It's our command. That's the majority view. It's the normal view. Yeah. So what does this verse mean? Many are called, but few are chosen. It's said at the end of a parable. I'm going to paraphrase the parable, yeah. Matthew 22. It's, Jesus tells a story about a man who is getting married, and he invites all his friends and guests to the wedding, and they say no. Mm -hmm. And the... Uh, the, the, the common understanding is that this is a little bit about Jesus saying, I've invited all the people of the, the, the people of Israel of the Old Testament covenant. I've invited them all to come and know me, Jesus, and follow me. Invited you Pharisees, invited everybody I've come to. And they say no. And then it says, so the, the, the bridegroom instructed his servants, he's obviously a wealthy guy, instructs his servants to go out and to find the poorest and the most destitute beggars on the street and invite them to his wedding. And that seems to resonate with what Jesus says a lot of the times, that he has come to seek and to save the lost. And the implication being that his friends were the good religious people, but they've rejected Jesus. They've chosen not to receive the invitation to the wedding. And so Jesus, the bridegroom, goes out to the people who nobody would invite to a wedding and say, come to my wedding. And then you get this odd little part. So these uncouth, vulnerable, difficult people who nobody else would invite to the wedding come to the wedding. But one of them doesn't dress for a wedding. So he appears to disregard that he's come to a wedding. Now, it's not clear what the others were wearing that was right for a wedding, but it's just this one person that comes and is invited to the wedding, but has not come in wedding clothes. It almost as if a bit of saying, I've, I'm here, but I'm not really joining in celebrating with the bridegroom. And so Jesus is almost suggesting, and says that, that person has to be thrown out. That that person isn't there just because they were poor and vulnerable, but they too needed to respond to the bridegroom. And they, for whatever reason, are like the wealthy friends who said, we're not even going to come. They said, we're going to come, but I'm not going to join in with the wedding. I'm not going to wear the right clothes. Presumably the servants had said, here are the clothes to wear to the wedding. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that. And then, in summary, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, taken on its own, it looks like Jesus, God doesn't choose very many people. But I would want to suggest that the context of the story is loads of people had been called and had chosen to reject. And the ultimate, the number of people who choose to respond to the invitation is smaller. So if, if Jesus had said, many are invited, but few reply, then you would say, well, that makes perfect sense mm -hmm. with the parable. That's what the parable is saying. But he says, but, but few are chosen. And the, the, 
the imp I think the, the, the way I understand it in that context is that he is saying, but few have taken the title of God's chosen people. And they've rejected the choice upon them to be what God wants them to be. So I, if it were, I'm far be it from me to want to put more words in the Bible than they're there. But if it were me, I'd say many are called, but few accept being chosen. I think that's what the parable is saying. But I go back to, you have to, I'm always worried about theologies, interpretations that take one verse mm -hmm. and you read that one verse, you go, yes, well, it's obvious. I, everything else must go around that. But mm -hmm. then you go and you put it against the rest of the Bible and you say, it doesn't make sense. And you, we can all play the game of here's one verse, here's another verse. Mm -hmm. My always, you know, one of our always go back to verses is John 3:16. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world mm -hmm. that whoever whoever, mm. whoever believes in him mm. shall not perish. Mm. Clearly, when there are so many verses that use the word whoever, so many verses that use the word uh, repent, so many verses that use the concept of obeying or disobeying, I think that that verse in in Matthew doesn't mean what we think in English it means if we take it in isolation, because mm -hmm. it's taken out of context. Mm. So our bottom line is, we are saying that God is love. Absolutely. God loves every single person on the face of this earth equally. That this is our take on the Bible. And as you said, there are other people that will have other views. And because God loves everyone equally, Everyone is invited into yes. a relationship with him. Yes. There are none that have been pre-selected. There are none that are sitting on the benches waiting to be selected and thinking, oh, I'm not going to be chosen. I'm not in the team. God doesn't do that to us. So if there's somebody out there that is thinking, I'm struggling to connect with God. Maybe I'm not yet a Christian. It's not a problem. That will happen. If there's someone that you know that isn't yet a Christian, don't give up on them. Yeah, well, one of the key things, I don't want to be too technical, but that little bit in Romans 9 to 11 has these verse, a few verses that imply God has chosen. But within that is this other glorious phrase, whoever calls on the name of mm. Jesus will be saved. Absolutely. Whoever calls mm. on the name of Jesus will be saved. So whatever fears we have, whatever doubts, whatever questions, whatever we, we worry about, if we just say, Jesus, will you save me? Mm. He will save us. Mm. Mm. We have to call on his name. Mm -hmm. We have to know that we need saving. Mm -hmm. But anyone, whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. The onus is on us to respond to his invitation. Yes. So He's I believe God there. knocks on the door yeah. heart of every single person, various points in our life. Mm -hmm. And that's one, of this, that he knock, that's one of the metaphors in the New Testament. Knocking on a door. He says, will you let me in? And whoever opens that door. They will become a Christian. They will know God in this lifetime and the next. We've covered this before. I'm going to just chuck it in here at this point. Um, because it's an interesting one tied in with becoming a Christian. Is there anything that we can do that will mean that we lose our salvation, that stop us being in relationship with God and stop us uh, getting to heaven when we die? Because we talked about it being our choice. Is there anything we, we can do after? We, so once we've chosen to become a Christian and we've entered into that relationship with God, Sins are forgiven. We've got this new life. The old has gone. The new has come. We have the promise of eternity with God in heaven. What happens if we fall away, if we're not so keen, we're not so interested, we maybe don't go to church, we don't read our Bible, we just slowly lapse? So the good news is that we are saved by Jesus' death on the cross. 
not saved by my behavior, mm -hmm. not saved by the strength of my faith. I'm not saved by whether I am a good person in the last 10 minutes of my life or the last year of my life. I'm not saved by how much I love God or not. I am saved by Jesus dying on the cross. Yeah. If I put my trust in that, I am saved by that. If I say, look, there's no other way. I'm, I'm completely unworthy of, of heaven except for Jesus' love for me. If I put my trust in that, he will save me. Oh, whatever mess sins I've got myself into, after my baptism, whatever, he will save me because I am saved through the death of Jesus, not through my behavior. Again, you've got bits of the New Testament that, that can be brought out to say something different. And what the New Testament, I think, says in one or two places, mostly in the book of Hebrews, is if you choose to replace the death of Jesus with another way of forgiveness, another religion, then I think God says, okay, if you don't want to be saved through the death of Jesus, you want to be saved through some other religion. He says, okay, I think there's a technicality. There's a little bit in the small print that says if you replace the death of Jesus with something else, then it's an unwise thing to do. Let's put it that way. Because he may say, okay, if that's really what you want, see if that will work. So I would never do that. But 99% of people who start off as Christians and get themselves into all kinds of poor choices, they don't actually reject the death of Jesus on the cross. They might reject God because they're angry with him because a prayer hasn't been answered, because of suffering, because of disappointment, because of disillusionment, because of the way the church has behaved, because of things that were so attractive they couldn't resist them. All of those things are not going to stop Jesus' death being effective for me. Um, and that's where the most folks drift from. It's, it's those kind of reasons. So they will still, uh, if they want to be in a relationship with God and still make it to heaven, what they will miss out on in some senses is just that daily interaction, that, that, that kind of connectedness in a sense with God. Yeah, and let's go back to the very beginning. You see, God isn't just simply interested in us just having a place in heaven. Mm. He wants each of our days to be fully effective for him. That's what he's chosen us for, for what mm. we want to do today. And there's a double, a, a double benefit to that. The first thing is that when you are living in the stream of what God intended you to do with your life, it is fulfilling. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but at least you can look back at the end of a, a week or a year or, or a lifetime and go, that was worth doing, mm. that was worth doing. Mm. And the second great bonus is that when you look back at the end of your life, there are other people who go to you and say, your life was worth living. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being that. So I, I, I really think it's important for us to get beyond Christianity's about being saved and move towards Christianity's about being a disciple. It's about being a follower of Jesus, about doing today what he wants us to do. And that is liberating. Lots of times we're not quite sure what that means and what that is, and we can unpack that again. But the bottom line is when we say to God, here I am, I'll do today what you want me to do. I'll speak your words in that conversation. I'll behave this, your ways in my place of work. That is life in all its fullness. That's, mm -hmm. And that's... That's what God has chosen us for. He's chosen the people we meet. He's chosen the people we live amongst. He's chosen the skills and gifts we have. So let's cooperate with that. Uh, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm shaped like a fullback and I play at fullback, I need to rejoice in being a fullback because when I play fullback, I'm going to enjoy the game far more. If I want to be in goal and I go in goal and I can't catch and I can't kick and I let in a thousand goals, what was the point? Mm -hmm. Let's be what God meant us to be. Okay, hold that thought, because we're going to come on to that in a moment a little bit more. We've had a message in from uh, Brother Steve. Brother Steve is here with us uh, again this evening. We love Steve's messages. He says, how would you define who is chosen from a point of view with regards to various religions, i.e. Hindus worship a different God and not the one true God, but they still have a faith and believe? Do you feel they will be saved at Christ's return? Um, so that's a, 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 um, 
A good question. Mm -hmm. I interestingly, interesting, if people want to go in a little bit more depth, than my last John study, where it talks about Jesus says, you've got to enter through the gate, I kind of talked a little bit more depth about that. So if folks want to go and find that on our website from last Sunday. Uh, it's called Entering the Gate, Entering the Fold, Entering the Pen, Entering Something. <laughs> Do you know, the gate was my local pub when I was growing up, so I think that's probably not the way to no, Jesus. No. Yeah. So basically, in the Old Testament, there are people who don't know Jesus. Mm. And they are, let's take King David. We believe that we will meet David in heaven, King David. But he didn't know Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus to take his sins on the cross. But we believe we will meet him because the, new t the Bible describes him as a, a, a righteous and loved man. However, he wasn't that particularly righteous. He was a murderer and an adulterer. And the description of him being close to God comes after that episode in his life. So David isn't saved because he knew Jesus and he isn't saved because he was good. I don't think he was saved through the religious ritual because God, towards the end of the Old Testament, says, you know, I'm fed up with your rituals. They don't mean anything if they don't have any integrity and that's where you come to the real issue. Psalm 51 is this psalm where David cries out to God in mercy for the sin that he's done, for the murder and adultery that he's committed. He commits adultery and murders his, uh, the woman's husband or arranges her, his death. Psalm 51 is a cry for mercy. It's almost like the cry of the cross, the thief on the cross that you mentioned. We've said that people are saved through the death of Jesus through our repentance. And it's clear that people who've never heard of Jesus in the Old Testament are saved through repentance and nothing else. Their repentance could have been enacted in their sacrifices, but it's repentance that saves. It is, it is humility. It's saying, God, I don't deserve this. I need your mercy. I've messed up. I think that God wants to save people. I think that because, we go back to our pillar... Jesus comes to earth to save people. He comes to seek and to save the lost. He comes to die on the cross. He wants to save people. Uh, when he gets up there in heaven and Jesus looks at all the people that are saved, I don't think he's going to go, oh, do you know what? I have just led in way too many. <laughs> I was hoping for 1% and it looks like 25% have followed me. Not got enough room. I think he's desperate to save people. He's yeah. so desperate that he takes a crown of thorns upon his head. He takes mm -hmm. whipping on his back because he's desperate to save people. Mm. He's not going to do that if he's already chosen who he's going to be. Mm. He does it because he's desperate to save people. He takes the humiliation of being rejected because he's desperate to save people. Mm. He wants people in heaven. So I think if somebody cries out to their understanding of God, whether they call him Allah or, or Krishna or whoever else they call, if they cry out to their understanding of God that they have been taught and they say, have mercy on me. I think they could well be saved through Jesus without knowing Jesus, just like David. But that has to be a heart response and yeah. not a ritualistic exactly. response. So that's the key to this because you, you've probably ruffled quite a few feathers just in that one sentence that you've just said. So it is about a heart response. Yeah, so let's be very clear. Yes. That's not what those religions teach. Yes. So this person would be going with their sense of God speaking to them more than what they are being taught because they are rejecting the concept that their religious ceremonies or their good works or their payment to the poor or their trip to holy places or their birthright, they're rejecting all of that as being sufficient and they're saying, now the only thing that would ever save me is God's mercy. So I do explain that a bit more in that John's thing and I might be wrong. But I just think Jesus wants to save everybody who repents. And just picking up on this multi-faith thing, I've heard of many testimonies from particularly Muslims who during uh, fasting in Ramadan, part of that is an earnest seeking and searching after Allah. Yeah. But in that earnestly seeking for the God that they believe is out there, our Father God in his great mercy and love, 
is pursuing them, is reaching out to them, is speaking to them and calling yeah. them, and they have yeah. responded yeah. to yeah. that, that they put themselves in a place where they were able to hear and to receive from God. Yeah, and let's be clear that it's very difficult for, in a number of religions for people to choose Christianity mm. in that they will, at best, at best, be totally shunned and rejected by all their friends and family, and at worst, they will lose their life. And therefore, I think it's perfectly understandable and probably quite, it's around a bit, if not a lot, that there are people who can't leave that religion, but they love Jesus. Joe Harrison's got a follow-up. Mm -hmm. Expanding on Brother Steve's question, uh, if someone told them about Jesus and they rejected that, but still repented to their own God, what do you think would happen? I would say, I think if someone is looking for God's mercy and they are told that God came to earth and died on the cross to, to show them his mercy, they would go, fantastic, that's what I believe. If somebody rejects Jesus, then they are rejecting mercy. So you can't reject Jesus. You can reject how the church has portrayed him. You can reject how Christians have distorted him. And that's what many people do do. And I, can't, I quite understand that. I'd reject Jesus if I didn't know what he was really like, if I just judged it by how many Christians behave or what many Christ churches do. But you... You cannot reject the concept that God has come to die in our place mm -hmm. because it's fundamentally about mercy. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, I, I believe I can only be saved by mercy, but I'm rejecting the merciful one. Like, that, wouldn't ha that, that would not be possible. For some people, it's incredibly dangerous for them to become a Christian. Yeah. So it is perfectly possible that they would not publicly profess Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Saviour. Absolutely. That's a very dangerous and difficult place. And I know, again, many people that have been killed for actually believing and Absolutely. saying Absolutely. And it may even be beyond that, that God wants them to stay in that, mm. that family and that mosque and continue to subvert the thing yep. rather than be kicked out and no, have no contact with anybody else again. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, let's go back to the, the idea that you're talking about, that God chooses us to be the people that we are, with the gifts, with the abilities, with the temperaments, to do the things that he wants us to do. So effectively, we, it would seem, have no choice in the direction that our lives go and the things that we want to do. It's kind of, this is the wrong word, been mapped out and predestined by God. So, Kath, you're going to be like this, and you're going to do this, this, and this. You don't have a choice in it. It might seem like you do, but you're my little puppet doing what I want to do. Is that what's happening? How does that all work out in practice? Uh, no, we're not God's puppets, because we can always reject, reject that. We can always turn against it. But, no, we didn't have... The, the, the plain reality is we don't have a choice over certain things. I did not have a choice as to whether I was going to have curly hair or ginger hair or, or short hair, hair or no hair. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not have a choice about the size of my nose. <laughs> it just, it just, just kept happened. on growing. <laughs> I don't have a choice about the things I'm good at. Yeah. I don't have a choice about my temperament. I do have a choice about my character. Mm -hmm. And I do have a choice about what I do with my gifts. I have a choice as to whether I run after things that I think I want to do that I'm not very good at and waste my life trying to be somebody I'm not. Or I have a choice to go with the flow and say, this is the way I'm shaped. Mm -hmm. I'm going to embrace it and use it to the full. So I have, I have a choice in the, in the things, of what I do with the things that I'm dealt. Does that make sense? Absolutely, but that takes a while to get to. It takes a while to work out what those things are, and it takes a while to be comfortable in them and to say, this is me. What would you say to somebody that looks at their life and thinks, I don't know what God's given me to do. There's nothing about me. Uh, what, what could I possibly contribute? I look at myself and think, oh, what's God gifted me in? I wish I was like such and such because it's so obvious. Yeah. What would you say to that? So I, I would say, if we go back to apologies, if we go back to the football analogy, let's start from the starting point. 
that every one of us has been is on the team. Mm -hmm. And the manager will find the right place for us. So there is nobody who's not any good at the sport, whatever it is, football, hockey, basketball. We're, we've all been, we're all there. It's just which position are we going to play? Don't you think everybody wants to be the striker? Secretly? Well, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe you know they what do. the goal is when they well, pick a penalty Yeah, I guess we look at people and say, I wish I was like them. Yeah. But ultimately, that's not very fulfilling. So I would say if we... I think most people have, don't really know what... Let's, let's, you know, people like me who feel we have a quite a strong sense of it, I, I've met enough people to know I'm, I'm in the minority. Most people don't. So the good news is that the Bible makes it very clear that it doesn't matter if you don't know precisely. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. You do that every day. And you love God which means will be expressed by loving your neighbour because you cannot love God and hate someone. So if we concentrate on saying, okay, I don't know exactly which part of the body I am. So one of the pictures we talked about is, is, that, is that God says we're like a body, that some of us are, are fingers, some of us are an eye, some of us are an ear, some of us are a nose, some of us are a belly button, some of us are an armpit. Uh, it even says, one of my favourite verses, some of us are the unpresentable parts that are kept <laughs> covered up, which I just think is a great verse. But anyway, <laughs> I won't say who I know who plays those parts. Anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> The, 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 the point is that he arranges it. And even if we don't know whether we're a finger or an eye, if we concentrate on being loving, and we talked all about that in our last Questions of Life last week, so you can go back last week, what does that look like in reality? You concentrate on doing that, and you find that God places begins to use the things that you're good at. And even if we're humble and we don't feel we're good at anything, if we're saying to God, here I am, here's the day, I'll use it for you, and I'm going to concentrate on being loving, God will be using you, and you will be using those gifts, and you will be in the right part of the body. Yeah. The problem occurs if you either say, I'm going to live today entirely for myself, and I don't care if I hurt anybody. Mm -hmm. I know we don't say it that bluntly, but that's in reality mm -hmm. what we often do. Or if we say to God, I want to do my things my way today. If we say to God, here I am, who and how can I love? It will work itself out, I think. I think as well to do that, we need to have the right picture and understanding of who God is. So if maybe in our upbringing we've been damaged by... Uh, figures of authority in our life, that can make that whole process and acceptance a little bit harder mm -hmm. because we can buck against people controlling us and telling us what to do. And so for someone in that situation, it's about beginning to find in the Bible the truth about who God is, that God isn't like those people that have led us down and maybe treated us badly in life but to begin to, in our minds, and to ask him and to ask others to help us. Mm. God, reveal yourself to me. Give me a true revelation through your word, through your spirit, that I may begin to let go of perhaps some of the issues that I have in trusting you and letting you, in a sense, have control, surrendering my life to you. Because for some people, this is difficult for them to do because of their experience. Mm. Uh, so it's perfectly right that God has created us to be the people that we are. It's perfectly right to seek him and to um, seek to do his will. But for some people, that might be a bit of a journey to get into a point where they feel they can fully do that. Yeah. I think for me, it's coming to that total place of confidence that perhaps God knows more than me and that he's good. And that a God who can create and shape the universe out of nothing and design and create human beings probably knows what he's doing. And that I can trust that what he has for me is good. I can trust that. And as you say, that may be harder if we're shaped by other experiences. So it's recognizing those other experiences and saying, 
I'm influenced by how humans treated me and not actually by what God is. Yes. And what God has for us is good because he wants us, we go back to Israel, he wants us to be a blessing and he wants us to know and, and his, his love and it's good, it's good. At what point do we get to make our own decisions about various things in our lives and at what point has God chosen and predestined what we're to do? So are we left to our own devices to choose a husband or wife? Are we left to our own devices to choose what car we have, what house we move into, where we go on holiday? I could, I could list a whole load of different things. You know, do we have to sit down and say, okay, God, when you were creating me, did you create me with uh, one other person in mind that I'm to marry? How does that all work? So uh, I would say that everything is a choice. And there are, uh, so the, I would say technically the word predestined is that in heaven I will have a new body. That's my destiny when I've chosen Jesus. My, my destiny is to have a new life in heaven. So I reserve the word predestination to talk about my destination and what it will be like. So that's just a technicality. But uh, I think that God is not in control of my life. He wants me to give him control of my life. And I think that there are things that he wants to guide us to and there are things where he says, do, we, do what you like. So where's the line? What, what are, what's on each side of the line? To me, the line is to do with blessing other people. And that where there is something that God wants us to do that is going to enrich, strengthen, bless, support, heal, bind up somebody else, then there is a, a, a prompting from him for that, us to do that, that we can reject. We can say, I don't want to do that. And a lot of the time, I fear I do reject God's prompts. I don't think what I eat, what I wear... Obviously. Is... <laughs> Is, is going to bless. <laughs> Did God not tell you to wear that today? <laughs> I didn't ask him. <laughs> well, that's your problem, isn't it? Well, okay. But if, if I was to be dressed in something incredibly inappropriate and provocative, I would imagine that there would be a nagging conscience of God saying, don't wear that. I didn't hear that tonight, so I'm wearing this. <laughs> God has given us a brain. Yeah. And what was the point of creating rational, free-thinking people if he had to do everything for us? Mm -hmm. And so much of the way human beings live is, is so much of basic parts of life are meant to teach us. So the whole way in which we grow as children is a lesson, I think. So uh, parents do not want to be telling their children what to do when they are adults. <laughs> You want them to grow and make their own choices, but you want to guide them to make the right choices. I don't think God wants us to sit there saying, I can't do anything until God's told me, I can't do anything until God's told me. But what I think he wants us to do is to learn what other things he would want us to do and to choose to do them and to naturally and instinctively be merciful, to naturally, naturally and instinctively be generous to naturally and instinctively look out for the poor and the vulnerable, to naturally and instinctively um, share what God has done in our lives. So the more you get to God, the more you think, this, the more that becomes natural choice, that's what I want to do. And then occasionally you find a particular word comes to mind or a particular sentence comes to mind, you think, oh, that's God telling me to say that, and that's great, and that's brilliant. But... If you think, if I, if I say, if I take my life mm -hmm. today, I've wanted throughout the day to do what God wanted me to do. I've wanted to be a blessing to other people. I, I, I haven't stopped at every moment and said, should I do that? But I filled my diary over the last month to what today would look like. And each point in time you put something in the diary, you 
You have a sense of whether that feels the right thing to do or not. Um, and in each occasion, you're, you're trying to do what you think God would have you do. But you've also got half an ear open for the unexpected and the unplanned. And I'm sure there are bits of today that weren't great and there are bits that were good. But I suspect that the things God really wanted me to do were just one or two things. And hopefully I've hit them. What do we do if we find ourselves in a place where we've gone a little bit off track? What does God do in that situation? Maybe we've made some choices that we look back and we think probably wasn't what God would have wanted me to do. How do we begin to sort that out? How does God sort that out? Well, again, this is where Christians would have a different, different points of view. But for me, the wonderful thing about God is he's called... One of the names of God is the Redeemer, which is to take something that was trapped or enslaved or imprisoned and set it free. And it has this idea that a future is changed. So I don't think God has a plan for my life. There is, when the word plan is used in the Bible, it's the plan of Jesus dying on the cross. There is a salvation plan. When he talks about people, and Jeremiah is the, the most commonly quoted, he talks about plans. God has plans for me. And he's the redeemer. So if I mess up, I believe God says, okay, we'll start where you are, and let's make the new plans from where you are, where you found yourself, where you've come back to me from. And people worry and they, they quote to me that they worry about me not believing God is sovereign or something or other around that. Well, actually, I think this, the idea that God only had one plan and that's it and therefore all the bad things are part of God's plan makes God too small, in my view. The bigger God is the God that says, wherever you come to me, I will make a good plan from that moment on. It may not be the best plan that would have, if you'd followed me from the, from the moment you were born, but it's going to be good now that you've come to me. When we say it may not be the best plan, it may be that we've been hurt, we've hurt other people. Yes. Yeah. So he's not going to limit his goodness to us in us starting again. Like yes. you said, it, yes. it, there is the potential for this to be really good. Not, oh, this is a second rate. Well, you didn't make the first But I, what I mean is that I may be imprisoned because I've committed yeah. a serious crime. I, that's not going to be undone. No. The consequences of that may live for a long time. So it isn't the best plan, but it's going to be good from now on. Yes. Yes, he takes us from that place. Yes. Doesn't miraculously yes. sort everything yes. out. And and this idea that God is is uh, is the redeemer is really important. And that he's sovereign, really in the Bible, is the idea is he is the power to judge and he is the he's the king who at the end of time will bring it all together and will separate the unrepentant from the repentant, and he has the authority to do that because he is the sovereign. So when we talk, I mean, this is another aside, me just going on a slight tangent for those who are interested in this subject. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we don't mean everything that happens is what he wants, although that's what some Christians think it means. But actually, I think what it means is he has the authority to punish everything that happened that wasn't what he wanted. So the queen is sovereign over our nation. She can't stop me driving at a 70 miles an hour round the one-way system in Sutton Coalfield, but she has the authority to punish me for it. That's what sovereignty means, that God is not responsible for the evil, but he is and in, in, uh, has the authority to deal with it. So God ha is not controlling everything. He is going to redeem everything, or he's going to restore and put people right with God or destroy those that don't want to be right with him. So that was a bit of a sermon, wasn't it? No, that's great. So to sum up, back to the beginning, God loves everybody. Everybody is invited to know him. There's no hierarchy or pecking order or these are my preferred people, everyone. Everyone is invited by God. God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind, God sent Jesus and also God has created us to be the unique individuals that we are. 
And we need to celebrate that, celebrate our uniqueness. We need to discover what that is and to be seeking God and to say, God, this is me. Use me. Use me wherever it is that you've planted me, whether that's in my home, whether that's with my neighbours, whether if it's I'm at uni or I'm studying or I'm at work or whatever. It's this sense of availability and openness. God, you've done so much in my life. You have transformed my life. I want to be part of you transforming my community and this world. Anything you want to add to that? I think that's a perfect summary. I think it's glorious that God has purposes and, and that I'm shaped in a unique way and that he's chosen me and he wants me. He wants me to follow him. He wants me. He's desperate. He's dying for me to follow mm. him. He wants me to follow him. And for me, the best choice I ever made was to accept his call and to choose to do what he wants with my life. Amen. Preach it. Love it.